Okay, with one eye nervously on the developments in Ukraine, let's turn back to the story. Previously on the podcast, I'd been to Shanghai, and I'd been to Chengshu City, which was my home. I hadn't been to anywhere else. So when the next weekend came, I went to Wuxi, a city in the same province, Jiangsu, a few hours inland. The first thing you notice when you're coming into Wuxi is the greenery. A glaring effort has been made to shroud the city in leaves, the reason for which has to be Wuxi's quite famous record on environmental degradation. The next thing you notice is the new buildings, pencil thin and still being built, with bamboo scaffolding scaling the sides like chicken wire. I'd booked a youth hostel in Wuxi, near the lake. Wuxi literally means no tin, and is said to have come from a pot which said, if there is tin there is an army, there will be conflict under heaven. If there is no tin, there will be peace under heaven. Wise words that must have seemed pertinent two and a half thousand years ago, but the engraver failed to see the discovery of opium, oil and racism. Then again, perhaps tin is a metaphor. I didn't recruit Maria or Penny or anyone for this joint, and had rather bravely taken the coach alone. Coach travel in China is extremely cheap, probably because Chinese roads can be fairly unnerving places to be. But people need to get around, so did I, and Changshu is a city with no train station. Before I set off, the driver walked down the aisle reminding everyone to use their seatbelts. Taking a look at the seatbelts, I realised that half of them were broken. But at least he was saying the right thing. There are two places to escape to on the coach. One is near the back, where you can't see the cars darting and weaving around out front, causing the bus to violently swerve and honk. From back there, it's just a noisy, bumpy ride. You can pretend you're in a simulator and eventually you'll stop thinking about it. The other place to escape to is the land of slumber. Public transport makes me remarkably tired. It must be the bounciness, or the cacophony of passengers on their phones, a stream of Chinese radio adverts blaring out phone numbers. So on any bus journey, I would holiday in the land of sleep, and hope vaguely that when I woke up, I wasn't dead. I never took a bus ride in which I didn't make friends with my Chinese neighbour. On one occasion, this friendship was expressed in burps, farts, and occasional singing. But it was a connection nonetheless. You don't blatantly fart in front of people unless they're your close friend, I reasoned. Another time, I met a woman who would eventually help another teacher visit the hospital. Other times, they were simply travellers, people visiting friends in nearby cities, who were interested in what had brought a Laowai to their vicinity. Despite the boom of the Golden Triangle, many people here are provincially curious about the outside world, and there I was, an ambassador of the unknown. My favourite was a man called Wu Tianming, who I met this afternoon en route from Changshu to Wuxi. We were about half an hour into the trip and my head was beginning to roll into my chest when the man to my left, a skinny young adult with aviator sunglasses, prodded me, rousing me from the early stages of hibernation. He showed me to his phone and I read, I want a photo with you, is okay? Sure, I said. Never turned down one yet and I wasn't going to start today. He whipped his arm around me in an alarmingly familiar embrace and took the speediest snapshot I've ever witnessed. I'd developed the habit of returning these requests with a request of my own, and so I too took a photo of us. This pleased Tianming immensely, and only encouraged him further. After ten minutes of silence, I was prodded again, and out came his phone once more. I want you to give me blessing. Write your words and where you are from. Feeling rather papal, I took his notebook and wrote, 
Dear Wu Tianming, Nice to meet you on the bus. Enjoy Wuxi and your future. Best wishes, Adam. This was as close as I was ever likely to get to being a celebrity, I realised. We then engaged in a well-rehearsed conversation about where I'm from and our respective jobs. I had become good at speaking this conversation in Chinese, but often couldn't understand the specifics about what the other person said. Tian Ming had an unusual question for me, however. He wanted to know if I had black friends. Why this was a pressing concern of his, I have no idea. Have white friends? Have black friends? Together, I said in Chinese. Oh, he said excitedly, and repeated what I said. Then we lapsed into silence once more, and within ten minutes I was sleeping uncomfortably. What an exhausting thing fame can be. I stood outside Ushi bus station for a short eternity while dusk set in. Cabs weren't stopping, just streaming past looking for less troublesome customers. Even the rickshaw drivers had better things to do, like play cards on upturned bins. Eventually one go-getter said he knew the address. He quoted me 30 yuan, and off we whirred down Ushi's remarkably bumpy streets. Suspension must be illegal on Chinese rickshaws, I learned that evening. After twenty minutes, he began to look doubtful, and said he wants forty, not thirty, and for the trouble. Are we lost? No, no, he said, but we should phone the hostel for directions. During the call, my mind swam with angry rhetoric, Chinese language prepped for the coming argument. It's not my fault you can't find it. You need to buy a map. You say thirty, I pay thirty. He handed back the phone and offered me a cigarette, which I declined, saying rudely, in English, that the pollution should do the job. Yes, insult the man's city in a language he can't understand. I was really becoming quite the expat. Finally, we arrived. I shook the driver's hand, gave him 40 yuan, and watched him push off back into the night. The hostel was tucked into the corner of a car park by an old building. I paid up, dumped the stuff in the room, and made it my purpose in life to have a beer. Sadly, they only had Qingdao, and I was getting a bit sick of this omnipresent lager, and even sadder, it was room temperature. But it only cost 3 yuan, that's about 30p, which brought me back from the brink. I sat among three girls taking photos of themselves with numerous objects in the hostel's lounge bar, including me. Then they left to visit a nightclub and the receptionist man came to talk to me. His English name was Will, and it turned out that he was volunteering at the hostel, that he was from Hubei province and spoke very bad Mandarin, hence in part the problems with the rickshaw driver. He told me how he liked James Blunt, and perhaps noting my alarm, astutely conjectured that there are perhaps Western bands that are very popular in China, but not so much back home. I can see why you'd think that, I nodded. But he is, actually, popular back home. Or was. In my experience, the carpenters are unnervingly popular all over Asia, at least in China, Taiwan and Thailand. Especially Thailand. This is probably a good example of something trite and forgettable finding a new home in Asia. Celine Dion, too. Will hadn't heard of the Carpenters, but I was sure he'd recognise a song. I took a deep breath and fired up YouTube to show him the Carpenters. He didn't know the band or any of the songs, which I found surprising and enviable. You have VPN, he remarked, as YouTube loaded. Oh yes, I said. Quite the show-off. 
China has the Great Firewall, and that means many foreign websites are blocked. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, Porn, and a bunch of news websites are all off limits. This is so the government controls the flow of information, but it also means that when you want to watch PewDiePie or share a Carpenter's song with your new friend, you need a virtual private network, VPN, to jump over the wall. They vary in price and dependability, with some being free but probably using your data in ways you might not approve of. Choosing a decent VPN is not a task to be taken lightly, although it often is. Despite Chinese state media using platforms like Twitter and YouTube to get their version of events out into the real world, in recent years more websites have been cut off from China. While the authorities haven't made VPNs illegal, they do what they can to prevent people getting them by removing apps from app stores or blocking websites they can be downloaded from. If you're already in China, you'll find yourself in a catch-22. To download a VPN, you need a VPN. Will and I talked about Facebook, which he had but couldn't access, and Wikipedia, which at the time was available but only in English. He told me how some people from Tibet made a pro-Tibetan independence video on YouTube and, as Will quietly put it, the government thought, this is not so good. I nodded. Will was a lovely guy, so open and measured. When you get a job in China, you'll have it written into your contract something like, the foreigner will follow Chinese law and regulations and will not interfere in Chinese internal political affairs. Some will even specify no-go areas of discussion, like Tibet, Taiwan and Tiananmen, the three T's. We all lapse, of course, especially when there's an opening. I joined Will in the realm of the hushed voices and asked, do you think control is getting more or less? He pursed his lips. Sometimes you think it's getting less, but something else happens from somewhere else and you find it's not getting less. But the people don't care so much. They just want to make their business. I think the business makes people mad. You know, when we turn 18 we have the right to vote, but I'm 24 and I've never voted. Now it's my turn to be surprised. Voting in China? Will told me that they had a vote for the local man who'll go to Beijing and be in the party. But they generally have no idea who this man is, and if someone gives them RMB to vote for them, they'll just do that. It makes no difference anyway. And even though there are different parties in Beijing, there is really just one party, the Communists. The eight other parties in Beijing are just for show, representing the KMT, the old Nationalist Party, or some party for democracy, things like that a party that was founded in 1998 to actually call for real democracy, the Democracy Party of China, was prescribed, its leaders and members locked up. Sometimes, though, Will told me, he thinks that, at the moment, just having one party might be the best option, because things are getting better in China. I could see his point, considering how gradual the democratic process can be. It'll probably be 15 years before the UK's high-speed rail 2 is completed, I said. The Shanghai-Beijing high-speed rail, by comparison, took three years from the day the first shovel went into the ground to the day the first commuter took a seat. You just bulldoze those houses out of the way. That's what having no democratic institutions does for you. As for democracy, it's the Republic of China, or Taiwan, who have it, rather than the People's Republic of China. At the moment, the Green Coalition is in power, with the president being Tsai Ing-wen, which means English, leader of the Democratic Progressive Party, and sworn enemy of Beijing. In Taiwan now, the hope is generally for independence. But Taiwan has been a de facto independent state for decades, so they can live with the status quo. 
Recent events in Hong Kong have clarified the issue somewhat for the Taiwanese. Being ruled by Beijing would mean giving up some seriously hard-won democratic freedoms. Taiwan has not only voting, but also has a different currency, different writing system, an independent body of law, the highest regarded level of press freedom in Asia. The cultural difference, a result of decades of alternative approaches, is most apparent in the attitude of the young adults. Although Will was bucking the trend somewhat, with his independent spirit and open mind. It was the Qing dynasty which made Taiwan part of the empire in the 17th century, ending Dutch rule over the island, which they called Ila Formosa, or Beautiful Island. When compared to the 5,000-year history that the Chinese liked to boast about, Rule over Taiwan has only been recent. The ancient concept of China was the territory bound by the so-called Four Seas, the East China Sea and the South China Sea, i.e. the Chinese coastline, and the inland lakes of Qinghai Lake to the west and Lake Baikal to the north, although this particular lake is really quite far to the north of the Great Wall in modern-day Russia. Anyway, islands were beyond the frontier. The Qing lost Taiwan to Japan at the end of the First Sino-Japanese War in 1895. By that point, the inhabitants of the island mostly considered themselves to be Chinese. But in terms of modern China, post-imperial China, those in Taiwan were left out of the loop. They were Japanese subjects for decades, while the nationalists and the communists tussled over control of the mainland, right up until the end of World War II when the Republic of China took control of the island as the Japanese went home in defeat. After losing mainland China to the communists, the nationalist government moved to Taiwan and claimed, rather incredulously, that mainland China belongs to them too, and they are a government in exile. The Americans originally supported them on that, but after Nixon visited Mao in 1972, a clever bit of wordplay meant that both sides could pretend that China was theirs. The One China policy states that the mainland and the island are all part of one China. Which government is the rightful ruler is a can that was kicked down the road. Taiwan's Green Coalition government, headed by the current leader Tsai Ing-wen, favours true independence, but can never really take the leap and declare it. Support for independence has gradually risen among the people, especially in light of events in Hong Kong. In communist China, the big mainland, the general attitude is that Taiwan is China, end of story. Xi Jinping has been making noises about bringing the rogue province back into the fold, and he'd make himself a national hero if he pulled it off. Taiwanese military experts estimate that within a few years, China will have the strength to be able to mount a comprehensive invasion that Taiwan would be powerless to prevent. At that point, the world's eyes will turn to America. Will they defend their democratic ally? Current events in Ukraine will lead to lessons learned on all sides of the Taiwan question. Will was unusual in my experience, in that he stepped back and looked at it objectively, considered the people's wishes rather than the nationalist narrative that all Chinese citizens are spoon-fed. It's like Hong Kong, he said, with protests. They want voting. Maybe voting will happen in China, he added. Maybe in 20 years. I wasn't quite so optimistic. We went on like this for many hours, as I went through a further 20 yuan's worth of beer and flaked out in the early hours. 
When dawn broke the following morning, it was to the tone-deaf croon of a young girl covering the carpenter's top of the world on the stereo. I ran down to find Will, but he was nowhere to be seen. I never stayed in touch with Will, and I wonder now whether the last few years of democratic decisions in the West forced him to reevaluate the merits of democracy. Brexit and Trump are generally seen in China as the bad decisions that they are, and portrayed by Chinese media as the kind of mess that countries can get themselves into when they let people make the decisions of state. The divisions in Western society don't come across as the healthy to and fro of democratic discourse that we sometimes pretend they are at this stage. They come across as once powerful nations flailing about as they try to cope with their relative decline in the world. Chaos in society and government is not appealing to the Chinese, where for hundreds of years the teachings of Confucius have promoted order and harmony, and the moments of chaos that the Chinese have endured have been utterly destructive. The saga of COVID-19 has further convinced China that they've got the goods to deal with the big issues. But Western government's weakness and confused priorities generally led to higher mortality and deeper economic damage. The appetite that the Chinese people have had for democracy over many decades has changed as China has become stronger and the West has become, if not weaker, then less inspirational, harder to hold up as the shining city on the hill. The next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, a look at morals in China, scandals in China, and what happens to those who speak out. But first, a chat with Brian Hugh, editor of the Taiwanese political magazine New Bloom. We talk about Taiwan's youth politics, specifically the sunflower movement where students occupied the Taiwanese legislature. Yes, some might draw analogies with the Trump insurrectionists who did something on the surface quite similar, but would that be right? Also, how the Taiwanese opposition party tries to remain relevant, how Taiwanese identity has shifted over the years, how the Hong Kong situation affects sentiments in Taiwan, the tricky tightrope that Taiwan walks with regards to China and the USA, and the prospects of an invasion. So join us with a chat with Brian Hugh. That's next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you.